Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, so Lost and Found is the series that we are currently in. Uh, Lost and Found number three. We've been focusing the past two weeks on people who think they're found just too blind to see that they are still lost. Sometimes religion blinds us, pride blinds us. This week and probably next, we're gonna focus on two people who think they are lost, but are actually right where God wants them. What if you only feel a little lost right now? I think a lot of us can identify with that lost feeling. It's been a weird year. Lots of change happening, and I just feel a little lost, God. But what if you only feel like you're a little lost? What if you're actually right where God wants you? Book of Job asks and answers these specific questions. It's actually a really unique book in the Bible. It's become one of my favorites uh, through a lot of study of it. It, It's uh, one of the three books we call wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job are the wisdom literature of the Bible. Proverbs used to be my favorite book growing up. I love the wisdom literature in the Word. And you almost can't study one without the other. There's a couple of uh, videos in the sermon notes that really explain this concept and, and each book individually and as part of the wisdom series in the Word. I definitely encourage you to listen to them if you want to know more about these books to really get the full picture. But the book of Job is also a very long book, a very dense book. I mean, the poetry never ends. The guys in this book do not know how to say anything short. They use a million words to get to the point. So it's a little tough to get through, but don't worry. I picked out some pieces to help us with this story today so we don't have to read all 40-something chapters of dense poetic language. So it starts at the beginning, Job 1, verse 1. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. Is it Uz or Uz? Say Uz. It doesn't feel right. I feel like it should be Uz. Job who lived in the land of Uz, he was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. So what we see in this story is a man who always obeys God and always gets rewarded for it. He was a very rich man, lots of kids. Success everywhere he goes, but he's a good man, a man of complete integrity, it says. So basically, Job was as close to perfection as a human can get. He, he lived a good life because of it. Success can often put up as many blinders as failure can, maybe more blinders than failure. So we see what, what's going on in the life of Job. Things are good, right? And meanwhile, we get to peek behind the curtain a little bit. Not only do we see what's going on down in Job's world in this book, but we also get to see a little bit of God's perspective. It's a unique book in that sense. We don't often get to see God's perspective in a story. And so Job 1 verse 6 describes this. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. 
Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Wouldn't it be nice to have God brag on you like that? Can you imagine? Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear the Lord. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test them, the Lord said. It helps me to remember this concept sometimes. Like, Satan is so powerful, he has to stand in line and ask for permission (laughs) from God. Right? Like, not actually that powerful if you have to stand in line and ask for permission. But yeah, do whatever you want with whatever, with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically, God said. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Bother anyone else a little bit that God kind of recommends Job for this honor? (laughs) The honor of losing everything that he has. And the story goes on. Job does lose everything. I mean, his whole family, his herds, property, his riches, he has nothing left but his health and his wife. (laughs) For some reason, Satan left the wife. I think we'll see a little bit why, who she was in the story. Nothing left but his health and his wife. And then so we see this this next scene in heaven, Job 2 verse 3. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man on all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to his face. Like, he doesn't give up. He's wrong, and he still doesn't give up. But I want you to notice here, Satan isn't questioning Job's commitment, He's questioning his motive, right? So God says, all right, do with him as you please, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Boils. I don't know about you, but I'd be maybe considering some curses at that point, right? Like if you didn't have anger problems before, even just reading this, my foot starts chopping a little bit. Like, God, what? How could you let this happen? In verse 8, Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die already. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? That's some faith to say that. Deep wells of faith. Job had. And in all this, Job said nothing wrong. In fact, we see Job do two incredibly right things in the next passages. First of all, he weeps and then he worships. He weeps and he worships. Weeping is right here because God never called us to ignore reality. Never called us to ignore reality. Faith does not deny reality. Faith believes God in spite of reality. Right? This is not negative confession. We're not speaking negative things over our life. In fact, when we went through the health situations that my husband went through a couple of years ago now, it, it, 
We had so many people come up and say, how are you doing? How's Aaron doing? And I'd say, well, you know, not good. <laughs> it was a not good week or whatever. And they, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. You asked how he was. That's the reality, right? I'm not confessing. Neg- I'm not speaking negative over him. That's just the reality. I also believe that God is bigger. I also believe that God's going to get us through this. But for whatever reason, he hasn't yet. We're here. It's bad. Feelings buried alive don't die just stuff them down further and further and further. But there's no such thing as an unexpressed emotion. God doesn't want you to to stuff all your feelings down and only proclaim promises and faith and, and truth and things that are not as though they are. Yes, we should be claiming the promises of God, but he doesn't ask you to ignore reality while you do so. It's not negative confession, but acknowledgement of the reality that you're living in and the reality that God can change it. Not everything is a curse or a faith statement. It's not all one way or the other. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Just reality sometimes. People who, who talk about negative or positive confession like it's a magical incantation. We can't manipulate God into doing what we want. I'm not going to manipulate him. It's just making it too simple. God is just. He is. He is just and he is good. But sometimes the story of Job still happens. That's why I love this book now, actually. It balances the word. It gives us another perspective. It's not just either you have faith to believe or you don't. I can will, I can impose my own will onto the world. Sometimes it's just God's will. And we're allowed to sit and weep to grieve the things that we've lost. Jesus wept. And the story of Lazarus, he actually weeps with Lazarus's family, knowing that he's going to raise him from the dead. He still weeps with them. It's okay to grieve, to experience loss and to grieve. And he wept, Job wept, but he also worships. And in fact, his weeping led to worshiping. And we should do the same. Weeping sets your eyes on one thing, but worship sets your eyes on another thing. Weeping sets your eyes on what you've lost. Worship sets your eyes on the giver. When he was worshiping, he was warring. He was changing his heart and his spirit. He was uh, casting away the bitterness, sadness, refocusing himself on who God is. And you can't think of the greatness of God and the enormity of your struggle at the same time. It forces you, worship forces you to focus. And so the story goes on in verse 11, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and they traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Anybody looking for baby names? Zophar, just saying. I don't think anyone has taken it yet. It's a possibility. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Now, these friends tend to get a bad rap, but honestly, they showed up. They showed up. I have a lot to say for people who just show up right now. You know, after a year like the one we've had, you have every excuse to not show up. It's easy to not show up, but these guys showed up. 
They didn't have to, but they sat with him in grief. They didn't say anything. Not even his wife came and sat with him in grief. She said, curse God, die, be done with it. I'm done with you, you know? They sat with him. They didn't have to do it, but they sat with him. They were present in his grief. It's probably the number one, like, counseling someone through grief 101 is just be there. Just be there. You don't have to have all the right things to say. You don't have to have all the answers. I think sometimes the fear of not having the right thing to say keeps us from saying anything at all to someone who's grieving and struggling. You don't have to say all the right things. Just be there. Listen. Listen for a while before you speak like they did. That's more than most of us do when someone goes through something like this. But they showed up. They sat with him. They listened for seven days. And after seven days of silent grieving, Job begins to speak. He's obviously processed a bit more since that first day, and now he's got some thoughts. So Job 3 verse 1 says, At last Job spoke, and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day of my birth be erased and the night it was conceived. Let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost, even to God on high, and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it. Let the darkness terrify it. (laughs) Not exactly suicidal here, but cursing the day that he was born. He wishes it would just all go away like it never happened. And it goes on like this for a while. It's a whole chapter of I cannot eat for sighing and my groans pour out like water and I have no rest only trouble comes and I won't depress you this morning with the rest of it but he goes on like that for a while and then his friends speak his friends go back and forth and back and forth and again it's dense poetic stuff it's really can be tough to get through but really what the friends are saying is that God is just they have faith to believe that God is good, that he, he is just in every way. They have full faith that he is a just God, and, and it must be something Job has done. He must have been awful. He must have done something to deserve this punishment. There's just no way this could be happening. If not, right, God wouldn't allow it, not just somebody good. He protects the good. He brings punishment on the bad. It's just that simple. But is it that simple? I, you know people love to explain your troubles, right? They always <laughs> have an answer. They have all the reasons when it's not happening to them. But is it that simple? We have the perspective of knowing what happened in heaven. So we know it's not just that simple. Job maintains the entire time, the, all these back and forth between him and his friends, he's, he maintains that he's innocent. He's done nothing so wrong that it could possibly justify this. He he also maintains that God is just, though. I know God is just. I know he is good. But I also know that I am, too. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And he's sort of all over the place with his very poetic emotions, which honestly is totally understandable. I'm all over the place with way less emotional turmoil. But he's got a lot going on. And so in the end, he demands an answer from God. He must know. I have to know, God, how you can possibly justify this. What is happening in my life is too great to bear. I need answers. Which sound familiar to anyone else. (laughs) I've had those pity parties sitting in the dust conversations with God too. God, how could you? Why would you? How could you allow this? Where were you when this happened, right? This is where Job is at. In Job 32, and it goes, these conversations back and forth go on for chapters. You can see in Job 32, 
Job's three friends refused to reply further to him because he kept insisting on his innocence. They were all talked out by this point. But then Elihu, everyone needs an Elihu in their life. Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the clan of Ram, became very angry. He was angry because Job refused to admit that he had sinned and that God was right in punishing him. He was also angry with Job's three friends, for they made God appear to be wrong in their inability to answer Job's arguments. Elihu had waited for the others to speak to Job because they were older than he, but when he saw they had no further reply, he spoke out angrily. So he's not agreeing with Job, and he's not agreeing with his friends, but he's angry that nobody's seeing the obvious assumptions going on in this conversation. He makes a couple of very solid points that apply to us today. In fact, there are five or six assumptions here we're going to go over today that we also make in our own troubles. But he points out to Job, number one, you assume God isn't answering you. You're assuming God's not answering you. He says in Job 33 verse 12, but you are wrong and I will show you why, for God is greater than any human being. So why are you bringing a charge against him? Why say he does not respond to people's complaints? For God speaks again and again, though people do not recognize it. God speaks again and again. We don't often see it, right? He speaks in dreams and visions of the night when deep sleep falls on people as they lie in their beds. He whispers in their ears and terrifies them with warnings. He makes them turn from doing wrong. He keeps them from pride. He protects them from the grave even from crossing over the river of death. We don't even know when he saves our life from the grave all the time, right? But he does. You assume God isn't answering you. Maybe he has. You just weren't listening. Maybe he has. You just weren't listening. I I think I did this growing up probably lots of different ways, but the the biggest thing I, I can remember is I think I was called to ministry as a kid. At kids camp, actually, the one I'm encouraging you all to send your kids to. I think around the altars, God called me into ministry as a kid. And and somewhere along the line, I forgot it. Um, As a senior, junior in high school, I struggled with, God, what do you want me to do with my life? I need answers. You have that pressure at that age to pick a college and pick a direction in life. And I was like, God, I want to do what you want me to do. How often do people come and say this? at this age, 17, 18 years old, how often are they saying, God, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I felt like I was doing God a favor, right? Like, God, just tell me, I'm doing all the right things. Just tell me what to do and I will do it. And I remember one time we had a speaker come in, guest speaker here at the church, and they said, after church, we're going to pray over people and prophesy and just seek God and what he has for you. And so he made himself available at the end and I went up for prayer and I said, okay, I want to know what God wants for my life. Like, what should, where should I go to college? What should I do? And uh, I remember the guy prayed very quickly. It was like two minutes, and he shot his head up. I was like, all right, I think I have an answer for you. I feel like God is saying this specific thing to you. And I was like, on the edge of my seat. Okay. Finally going to know, right? What is it? What does he have for me? And the guy said, God is guiding you uniquely. That's it. Like, uh, did he say how? <laughs> right, like, uh, there's not a career path in uniquely. I don't, I don't know. What, is, what does that mean? I left so angry that day. Like, God, you obviously can speak. You did. <laughs> 
I'm you're listening, but you, you gave me nothing. That is not a plan. That is not a go to college here. That is, I wanted like one, two, three, steps one, two, and three. This is what, I, that's nothing. God is guiding you uniquely. What am I supposed to do with that? Right? I'm back to square one. I got nothing. I have to figure it out on my own. I guess I was so mad. A couple of years I was mad about that. Until I realized later, and I was in ministry, and I was functioning that way, and I was actually at camp with, you know, chaperoning a bunch of kids, maybe for the first or second time, and I saw God speaking to kids, and it brought back this memory. God spoke to me, too. Maybe I wasn't listening, and maybe I forgot. I could have known exactly what I was going to do with my life from, like, 10, 11 years old. I chose to walk away from that. I chose to forget it, to not listen to it. Maybe God is answering you. You just aren't listening. Number two, assumption. You assume God is going against his own sense of justice. Listen, in Job 34, verse 33, says, Must God tailor his justice to your demands? Must he tailor his justice to your demands? But you have rejected him. The choice is yours, not mine. Go ahead, share your wisdom with us. I like when they get a little sarcastic in the Bible. After all, bright people will tell me and wise people will hear me say, Job speaks out of ignorance. His words lack insight. Job, you deserve the maximum penalty for the wicked way you've talked. For you have added rebellion to your sin. You show no respect. You, and you speak many angry words against God. You assume God is going against his own sense of justice when really you're putting your own justice on him. You think you know better, Job. You think you got it all figured out. The, the universe that God himself created, you're telling him how to run it. God, where were you? Like, like if you had just been here, you would have fixed it. If you, if you had just watched, you, you would have prevented it. But again, the Lazarus story. Right, we see Jesus in his ministry doing this too. Jesus stayed where he was for two days before he came and healed Lazarus. And Lazarus died. When he finally got there, we see his sisters say to Jesus, where were you? You had just been here, Lord. If you had just been here. And it sounds like, it sounds like a very faith-filled thing to say. I believe that you would have healed him. I believe that you would have if you had just been here. We did our part in calling you, Jesus. You didn't come. Like, Jesus didn't know what was going on. <laughs> like, like he, he chose to stay away to specifically hurt them. And they had no faith to believe that Jesus could raise him from the dead, for example. Or that Jesus knew what he was doing and he stayed away for a reason. Jesus said all these things happened for God's glory and so that the disciples would really believe. And he raised him from the dead. And that one event catapulted Jesus's death sequence. You know, the story of Lazarus happened very close to the end of Jesus' ministry. I don't know that his death would have even happened without the story of Lazarus. That's what exploded his fame throughout the, the region. It got the religious leaders all upset. They went after him strongly after Lazarus. It was the beginning of the end for Jesus' ministry. His death may not have happened without it. Jesus knew what he was doing, setting up events forever, not just for that time and place, not just for Lazarus himself, but for all of us forever, 
Of course, his sisters couldn't see that at the time, but we have to trust that God knows what he's doing. We have to assume God is capable of deciding justice for himself, and we don't have to insert our noses into it, right? You assume God is going against his own sense of justice when really you're putting your own justice on him. Third assumption is you assume you are without sin. (laughs) Job 35 verse 2 says, do you think it's right for you to claim I'm righteous before God? Is that a right thing to say? I am righteous before God. Is that something a human can claim? Is it right for you to claim I am righteous before God? Because you also ask, what's in it for me? What's the use of living a righteous life? That's a common theme in all of Job's rantings. What's the use? Why am I doing all this? Why am I jumping through the hoops? Why am I offering sacrifices? Why am I going to church? Why am I serving in kids ministry? Why am I doing all of these things if you're not going to bless me? Is that the right attitude? Is that a righteous attitude? Can you claim both? I am righteous and also what's in it for me. Look up into the sky and see the clouds high above you. If you sin, how does that affect God? Even if you sin again and again, what effect will it have on him? If you are good, is this some great gift to him? What could you possibly give him? No, your sins affect only people like yourself and your good deeds also affect only humans. People cry out when they are oppressed. And when they cry out, God does not answer because of their pride. But it is wrong to say God doesn't listen. To say the Almighty isn't concerned. You assume you're without sin. But by doing so, you're committing the sin of pride. And we say, I've done everything right, God. Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you healing me? Why aren't you ending the suffering? Aren't we just being prideful? You're selfish in your righteousness because you're doing it only for what you're getting out of it. And not just because God says so, not just trusting him with what you're doing. Joseph didn't take this attitude. Joseph didn't look at his blessings as for Joseph because of Joseph. He looked at his blessings as from God for others. He went through slavery and suffering and and prison and all these horrible things, and he looked at everything as from God for people. We assume we're without sin, but by doing so, we're committing the sin of pride. Number four, you assume that because he hasn't answered so far, he isn't going to. Job 35 verse 14 says, you can't see him. You say you can't see him, but he will bring justice if you only wait He will bring justice if you will only wait. You say he does not respond to sinners with anger and is not greatly concerned about wickedness, but you're talking nonsense, Job. You've spoken like a fool. We assume that because he hasn't answered so far, he isn't going to, when really we're just not being patient. God exists outside of time. He created time. What seems like a long time to us is nothing to God. We're not trusting him. We're not being patient enough to wait. He's got a lot more going on than we could possibly imagine. We're just being impatient. I want God to answer my request now or yesterday if possible. Like, I want answers already. God, why aren't you answering me already? How dare you? He's not on your time schedule. Be patient. Just because he hasn't answered yet doesn't mean he won't. Number five, you assume... Suffering is a punishment. 
This one's tougher to swallow. Job 36 verse 13 says, For the godless are full of resentment. Even when he punishes them, they refuse to cry out to him for help. They die when they are young after wasting their lives in immoral living. But by means of their suffering, he rescues those who suffer. For he gets their attention through adversary. adversity. He gets their attention through adversity. God is leading you away from danger, Job. He's leading you away from danger, Job, to a place free from distress. He's setting your table with the best food, but you are obsessed with whether the godless will be judged. Don't worry, judgment and justice will be upheld, but watch out or you may be seduced by wealth. Don't let yourself be bribed into sin. Be on guard. Turn your back from evil, for God sent this suffering to keep you from a life of evil. He sent this suffering to keep you from a life of evil. We want to say, look, I, you're punishing me. You're, you're holding my past against me. This, this must be happening for a reason. But what if we assume it's the wrong reason? Your suffering is a punishment. We assume it's a punishment. But what if it's a warning? We're so short-sighted as human beings. And we see the, the universe is only cause and effect. That's a limited view. Every, every action has a, a reaction, and what goes up must come down, right? We see these things as cause and effect. We forget that God doesn't exist within our constraints. He doesn't exist within our time constraints, All right? Maybe he sees something coming and is using the accuser to train you now so that when it comes, you'll be ready. Maybe he's preparing you, not punishing you. Stop putting God in a box. We think he should fit neatly in our little packages, the, the do's and don'ts that we create for him. Stop putting God in a box. He's bigger than that. We assume suffering is a punishment, but what if it's a warning? Number six assumption, you assume you should understand everything about God. We should understand it all, right? Job 36 says, look, God is greater than we can understand his years cannot be counted. He draws up the water vapor and then distills it into rain. The rain pours down from the clouds and everyone benefits. Who can understand the spreading of the clouds and the thunder that rolls in from heaven? Who could understand? God is greater than we can possibly understand. He's capable of so much more than we could ever even ask or think of. Exceedingly, abundantly more than we could ask or think of. Who could understand? We assume we should understand everything about God, that he should reveal his secrets and mysteries to us. But really, who could ever? You think you have it all figured out, Job? You don't. The further into understanding the Bible I get, the more I realize I don't understand. <laughs> there are depths of truth. It's not this truth lying around on the surface for us to stumble across. There's depths to what God says to us. Sometimes it's digging through layers and layers, and it's all true, but it's all revelation, brand new truth. The more I get into understanding it, the less I understand. So much more out there. And I've studied this book, Job, multiple times now. I get brand new revelations from it every single time. So many, I can't fit them into a sermon. We assume we should understand everything about God. But really, who could ever? There's a lot of assumptions here. I'm pretty sure I've made every single one of them, too. You know, we all need an Elihu in our lives. 
as somebody willing to speak truth and see things from a different perspective, someone willing to call us out when we're just being defensive and whiny and making all kinds of assumptions, or we're, we're too busy trying to defend, or defend ourselves that we're, we make all these egregious assumptions about God. They're not fair. And because of those assumptions, we feel lost. We feel angry at God. We feel confused and, and alone and like our, our bearings are all off. But God is the God of intentionality. I feel like I say this almost every sermon lately, but when he does something, he's doing something. And even when it seems like he's doing nothing, he is doing something. He's the God of intentionality. His actions are never an end unto themselves. He is working toward something. And this concept is easy to embrace. God is acting in ways that we prefer. Things are going well for us. It's easy to say, yeah, God has a purpose for this. But it's much more difficult when God is behaving in ways we do not understand. And I think this is why we get a little bit of God's perspective in this book. Without it, we might draw the wrong conclusions. We might oversimplify this. We might just see Job as a, a guy who lost everything but was still faithful and he gained back double and it was about that double blessing. Maybe part of this is God. We see God, you know, recommending someone for trouble, but maybe he's actually recommending them for double the blessing on the other side, someone who can handle the blessing. But maybe it's also about God wanting to process Job's character in a, a way that he can handle the blessing when it comes. Maybe you're being tested not because you're weak, but because you're strong. Even when God allows Job to go through something, he puts limitations on it. He never allows what he does not intend to use. God will always use the bad things that happen in our life as long as we trust him. As we trust him. For those who love the Lord, he will turn everything into good. And some people have trouble with that fact, like, especially in this story. Even people are included on Job's list of losses. He lost his family, human lives. Doesn't God care about them? Surely there's grace for them. Job lost his kids. And sure, he got double the kids later, but what about the first ones? Right? It also says in the beginning of this book, one of the passages that we skipped over today, that Job's kids would frequently have wild parties that lasted for days. Afterward, Job would sacrifice for them. He'd offer sacrifices to God to cover their sin. Perhaps they've sinned, he said, but why weren't they offering those sacrifices? Maybe God was giving Job a second chance to raise a family that didn't take their blessings for granted. Maybe those first kids would have ushered in an, an era of evil and selfishness that Job's legacy didn't deserve. God was giving him a second chance. And, and after Elihu points out a few of these assumptions that Job makes, we finally see God's response. At least I'm always tempted to say, finally. Finally. But when God does something, it's always at the right time. It may not be our time, but the right time. And I think there's something to the fact that God waited to speak to Job to address all his issues until after he had worked it through with some friends. After he had been corrected a little, he had been rebuked a little bit, he had been uh, 
set on the right path a little bit, then God answers. Sometimes Christians are against therapy or mental health stuff because isn't God enough, right? Some Christians are even against church because isn't God enough? You need people too. You were created to need people too. God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. And he had God. He was in the garden, one with God. And God said, it's not good for you to be alone. It wasn't whole. It wasn't complete. It wasn't right yet. We need each other. God answers Job after his friends do. And after Elihu opens up Job's mind to the possibility that he may be wrong about some things. I think that's significant. Because an overall good guy making some wrong assumptions about God can get very off track when disaster strikes. In the end, God did answer Job. Job 38, we begin to see his answer. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Your love and God gets a little snarky. Tell me if you know so much, Job. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no further shall you come. Here your proud waves must stop. God goes on with this grandiose language for two chapters. And he gets really in detail about the weather and about specific animals like the donkey and the horse and the wild ox and the ostrich. Job 40. Then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? Do you? You're God's critic, but do you have the answers? And I love Job's reply. After two chapters of God laying out everything that the Lord oversees, that it's not just about Job and his little life and and, and his specific piece of the earth, but God shows him the whole scope of everything. And I love, after literally 38 chapters of Job complaining, this is what Job has to reply. Then Job replied to the Lord, the Lord, verse 4, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. <laughs> what else could possibly be the right response? Right? I'm going to shut my mouth now. Right? I shouldn't have said anything in the first place. I see it now. You're big. I misjudged my own importance. But God doesn't stop there. In fact, I've almost never seen him just humble someone. He doesn't ruin their lives and then <laughs> leave them. He speaks the truth in love. He, he also redirects their thinking. In Job 40, verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you're right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right, put on your glory and splendor, your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. 
bury them in the dust, imprison them in the world in the world of the dead, then I, even I would praise you. God is saying, then even I would praise you. If you could do all those things like I could, even I would praise you for your own strength would save you. God goes on in this next dense poetic language to emphasize two of his creations. And this is significant. He talks about the behemoth and the Leviathan. The behemoth and the Leviathan. Now, there's some difference in opinion on what these creatures actually are. They could be the hippo or or the rhino, the crocodile maybe, right? Just old language for animals that we already know. They could also be mythological creatures that God was sort of making a symbol of. I tend to think God was talking about real creatures here. It's way too specific about what they are and what they can do. He emphasizes the dangerous parts of them, the untamable nature of them. And either way, I think the meaning is clear. These are two symbols of disorder and danger in God's world. Symbols that he is emphasizing to Job. Look, this beautiful world that I created, and I'm in control of it all, but I created the behemoth and the Leviathan too, and they are dangerous. They're disorder. They're untamable. The the world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect, and it's not safe. He was saying these creatures, they're not evil, but they're not safe. God created order and beauty and rhythms in this world, but he also created the world wild and dangerous, at least since the fall of man. It's not designed to prevent suffering. Job's three friends, they tried to simplify the world. They wanted God to fit into their little box, right? They wanted things to be black and white, bad and good, simple and easy, easy to grasp. Nothing too complex that they would have to work to understand it. They wanted God to reward their good behavior and anything bad must be punishment. They wanted it easy to understand. And I've been calling this the cult of comfort. Comfort was their God, not Jehovah God. Cultural Christianity wants things to be simple. They want God in their little box. But what, all that is is karma, essentially. Whatever we put into the world will come back to us. But that's an oversimplification. Yes, sometimes that happens. And it is a, a godly principle that what you reap, you will sow. But God can also see the future. What if the pain you're in right now is to develop you for the future and it actually has nothing to do with your past? Or what if God was speaking to you in the past about what was coming and you just didn't prepare for it? What what if God has a higher perspective than you? We think we have control over whether the world mistreats us or not. We don't. We think we have control over whether we're successful or not. We don't. We do have control, though, over whether God is with us or not. Lean into that. Be obedient. Trust him, even in the tough times, even when it's hard, even when you've lost everything, even when you feel lost in your soul, even when it's your own actions and issues that have gotten you here. You don't understand it at all, all of it. I I don't. Stop demanding easy answers from God. Even God didn't put himself in a box. 
right? When Moses said, who shall I tell them is sending me? He was asking God for a name. God, give me your name. Who are you? Who can I tell them sent me? God said, I am. Even he didn't put himself in a box. He didn't label it. I am. Tell them I am because I am Jehovah Rapha when you need a healer. I am Jehovah Jireh when you need a provider. I am Jehovah Nissi when you need a flag to, to follow into battle. I am. That's who's sending you because I am who you need me to be when you need me to be it. I am God. Don't put me in a box. Why do we keep putting him in a box for a few days this week, a single question bothered me a lot. Would I be willing to lose everything that currently defines me if God asked me to? Would I be willing to lose everything I know now even if I knew that there was double on the other side? I think most of us would choose to stay comfortable. Yes, even Christians. I think we would choose to stay comfortable, but what are we losing by clinging to our comfort? Why are we choosing to stay lost when we know the map maker? The cult of comfort, the, the cultural Christianity thing that I'm sort of coming against in the series, it's this pseudo-Christian religion based around a God who rewards good behavior always. And so any bad thing must be seen as an attack from the enemy or a reason to be angry with God, but that's simply an oversimplification. God is sovereign, not simple. He protects you. He keeps you. He upholds you with his righteous right hand, and all of that is true, but sometimes he also tests you, breaks you, asks you to crawl up onto a cross for the sake of others people you'll never meet or go to a city you hate and preach repentance to them like Jonah or endorse slavery and prison and mistreatment so that you can save the world from starvation like Joseph and sometimes he asks for your trust and he calls you out on the absurdity of thinking you deserve an explanation from the almighty creator of heaven and earth we don't deserve answers, but he does give them. Have the honest conversation. He didn't smite God, smite Job right then and there for, for being angry. He might have reprimanded him, but he had the conversation. God isn't afraid of your anger, your fear, your doubt. He wants to have the conversation. He wants to talk to you about it. Don't make Job's mistake and assume you know what you're talking about. Job assumed the comfort he had enjoyed was because of Job. In the end, he said, I see it now. You're sovereign. I had no right to be angry that you took something I did nothing to deserve. Instead of asking God for nothing but safety and protection, maybe we should be asking him for deeper revelations of who he is. And then when the trials come, Instead of getting angry, we'll see them for what they are. Learning opportunities. A lot of us feel lost after a year like this year. Up is down and down is up and I don't, I don't know what's going on. Maybe we feel lost, but we're right where God wants us. 
Maybe he's preparing you, processing your character in such a way that you can handle double the blessing in the future. Father, today, we ask that you would reveal those truths to us. That where we are making assumptions about who you are, you would correct our thinking. Line us up with your word. Line us up with your character, your thoughts and ideas. Reveal your mysteries to us, God. Help us see the truth as only you can. Change our perspectives and our mindsets. Let us be open to that. Soften hearts today. We would be able to fully feel your presence. Be corrected by your wisdom. Be able to move into the future confident and strong in who we are in Christ. Today, with heads bowed and eyes still closed, I just want to give you a chance between you and God to say, I've been angry at God. I feel a little lost right now, but I'm starting to realize I'm just angry. Uh, Maybe I just need to have the conversation today. Tell God about my anger and allow him to speak to it. That's you. I just want to know who I'm praying for today. Would you just raise your hand? I've been angry at God. I need to repent. Okay, thank you. Those down. Maybe you're saying today, I've never had a relationship with God. Even enough to talk to him. I don't know how to talk to him. I've never had that. Today, I'm here to tell you, you can have it. And it's so simple. Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago to die on a cross to offer himself as a sacrifice to pay the price for your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. The person that you've been in the past is his forgiveness. His love is free. He wants to give it to you today. All we have to do is say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I'm sorry for my past that I know you, you came to die on the cross to forgive me to love me and I just want to I'm choosing to live my life from today forward your way I'm going to do it your way I'm in to following Jesus Father today we just we speak a blessing we thank you and praise you for your word thank you that it's useful to teach us and correct us and guide us and rebuke us sometimes when necessary but Father right now I just pray that each and every one of us would leave with a deeper understanding of who you are, a deeper revelation of your presence. We would know you like never before. We would understand your character on a deeper level than we ever have before. God, bless us. Keep us. Reveal yourself to us. Make us the vibrant, passionate, selfless church you've called us to be so that we can go into all the world and change it with the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.